everybody deserves respect. Every candidate, no matter what their background is, what their level is, like where they've come from. And the same for people on the like hiring side as well. I think some of the disdain against like recruiters is like completely warranted. But a lot of recruiters, especially like internal recruiters, are really overworked. That was Parol Singh, a recruitment marketing partner who also worked as a tech recruiter. I wanted to speak with Parol because her advice on how to stand out and land a role in tech isn't the same as everybody else's. This episode is full of refreshingly unique and honest insights and perspectives and some new job platforms you can use to inspire or recharge your developer job search. It is hard to stand out as a junior developer, but we'll talk about some ideas about how it can be done. To wrap things up, we will learn from Parole why some recruiters don't advertise the salary range and how we can gain more insights to better understand that compensation range and therefore our scope to negotiate. Parole, welcome to the show. How did you get into technical recruiting, first of all? It's not the kind of thing that everybody grows up saying to their mum and dad, I want to be a technical recruiter when I grow up. Yeah, do you know what, Alex? You are absolutely right. And I have a lot of recruiter friends and everyone will say almost exactly the same thing. We just fell into it. So I studied chemistry at university. I'm not going to bore you with like the whole sort of like story. It tends to be something that I tell people at the pub. But I was desperate for a grad job. I fell into agency recruitment and it happened to be tech. And I remember in my first couple of weeks, sat there in like training and I was like, what is this .NET? What is it? Like, I don't get it. Have I made a big mistake? Maybe I should do recruitment in like another thing. But do you know what? I am really stubborn. And I stuck with it because mama didn't raise no queer. And I think it was the best accident that ever happened in my life because... Um, I have pivoted my career a little bit, but I found so much fulfillment in technical recruiting. So I did do agency side for about four years and then I went internal just under two years ago. So all the software engineers sort of like roles, hired for like engineering managers and yeah, very happy accident. Were you mostly hiring .NET developers? Was that your speciality? I did start off doing .NET developers, but then I had an opportunity in my first company to do something a little bit different. I started doing JavaScript, actually. And then, yeah, that basically became my specialism for the rest of my like recruitment career because I think it's really hard to be like a generalist, even within like software engineers, because I think you really need to know your market and you really need to know your tech. And I think some of the best recruiters know all of that like inside out so yeah i've recruited right from like junior level to like lead level and um also recruited a few sort of like engineering managers as well i really like vibes with javascript people the most i'm not saying that like the rest aren't like cool because you're all amazing but (laughs) i don't know i just think like i was really interested in web development anyway so it just worked out very well so is it safe to say you know your java from your javascript yes and you know which is the way that i used to teach it to other people is that like java to javascript is the same as like ham to hamster (laughs) they are different things do you know how to code yourself yes when i had been recruiting for javascript developers for a little while i'm a really naturally curious person and then the first lockdown happened 
And before that, I've been learning on this like really basic app on like my iPhone, just a bit of like, you know, JavaScript, like HTML and stuff. And I was like, okay, this is a really good time. I want to learn how to code. And I had a load of spare time, just like everybody else. So when other people are learning how to bake sourdough breads or like focaccia or I don't know, learning how to knit, like I was learning how to code. So I hope this isn't like blasphemy to say this on the Scrimba podcast, but I did start off with a course on Udemy. Parol, it was so nice to have you on the podcast. Thank you for joining me. <laughs> but no way, it's a compliment because, so I'm neurodivergent. Well, I actually didn't know it at that time. And I just didn't find, the course itself was great. Like the quality of content was fantastic. But that format of like learning just didn't gel with me. And I found myself really like forcing myself to do it once the initial excitement like wore off. And then somebody, because I talked to my candidates about it, and somebody told me about Scrimba. So I came across Scrimba almost like four years ago. You're kidding. And just to clarify for anybody listening, I am not being paid to say this. Or this is not sponsored or anything like that. And like Alex hasn't bribed me in any form. But I love Scrimba because of like the interactivity element of it. So that was what I was missing from the other courses because I really like to know why things work and like how to break them. So I would like pause whatever like, um, you know, the session was and then pause it and then like change the code and be like, oh, well, if I do this, then what does this do? And then like run it. But that's how I basically taught myself. So I was learning functions and like arrays and like objects and all of that kind of stuff and I'm really gutted that I've kind of like lost sight of it a little bit but I was doing it solidly for like a good few years now. It's funny because when I tried learning coding in school I really struggled because you know the teacher would present something on the whiteboard and then you'd go into this group of 30 with one teacher and you'd be expected to like figure it out and cross-reference a book and you'd often be doing something totally theoretical or you might spend more time kind of wrangling with the tool trying to get the editor to load up for example compared to actually focusing on the code when i finished school and i decided i wanted to teach myself coding i started by watching youtube videos and i I found that worked better because i could find a teacher whose style and way of teaching resonated more with me but it was still kind of annoying to have to like copy over all the code and sometimes they would be referencing a variable that wasn't currently on the screen and you couldn't toy with it and i totally identify with what you're saying like i understand things better when I can answer why a few times like why is it working this way why is it doing that and you kind of want to go a little bit deeper and Scrimba enables you to do that I think that's a really interesting way of explaining it yeah I think it just makes it so much more accessible because I know that like some of the courses are like paid but like a lot of them are also like free and even after leaving um because I don't currently like hands-on recruit but I recommend for like all recruiters should know to like the basic level what they're the candidates that they're recruiting for what do they do because what I found is that firstly I enjoyed it because I'm like well I'm in this world like day in and day out and like I want to I really want to know what I'm talking about I just found it really fun and like the concept that like you know I could go on and like build my own websites like my own apps was like really exciting I didn't but Again, that ADHD thing, I'm like, oh, yes, I'm going to do this and all of the graveyard of abandoned hobbies. So I didn't actually build a website, but the option was there. And then I think the other thing which was great is that it gave me so much more credibility with like the candidates. So I know that the audience listening to this, you know, you said um, a lot of them are generally 
like, you know, newer developers who are looking to like break into tech or maybe a few people at the early stages of their like career. So you'll deal with tech recruiters, maybe a little bit less now, but like you definitely will in the future. You know, there's a lot of great people who really take the time to actually learn their craft. So when you're actually looking for like recruiters to work with, um, you want to pick the people who know what they're talking about because they're going to understand you. They're going to understand like the client requirements and they're going to match you up the best like the jobs that you're actually like looking for. So basically it's like a win-win situation because when I would then reach out to people and my tagline was like the recruiter that codes, people would immediately like it would kind of catch their attention because they're like, I've never seen this before. So it worked really well on like both sides. Coming up, why job candidates need to be good negotiators. Is a few minutes of what you feel is an uncomfortable conversation, an extra 10, 15, 20K for like the next year or so. But before that, let's take a look at your social media posts about the podcast. Hi, I'm Jan, the producer, and in every episode, I go through your LinkedIn and Twitter posts, as well as your reviews from Apple Podcasts and other podcasting apps, and highlight the coolest ones. Roxana Rodback at Rocks Learns Code tweeted, Really enjoyed the Scrimba podcast episode with Cassie Lewis. It's always so motivating to hear someone with similar commitments make it into tech because I can implement a lot of her advice. So grateful to have found her. Thank you, Scrimba. That was a really cool episode, and I'll be linking it in the show notes in case you missed it. And Joshua Rowan tweeted, Absolutely love the Scrimba podcast, filled with advice that's as inspiring as it is practical. If your resolution this year is to break into a coding career, give this a listen. Thank you, Joshua, and good luck on your coding journey. And if you're also enjoying our show and you want to make sure we make more of it, the best thing you can do is to tell somebody about it. You can do it in person on Discord or on social media. And if your tweets or LinkedIn posts contain the words Scrimba and podcast, we will find them. And you might get a shout out right here on the show. And if you're feeling super supportive, you can also leave us a rating or a review in your podcast app of choice. But for now, we're going back to the interview with Parul. Let's talk a little bit about how a developer can get recognized by a recruiter. In your experience, how and where would you source candidates and what made a candidate stand out if you came across their profile? I didn't recruit for a lot of like junior roles, but people still source for junior candidates. Where I would source for them would be LinkedIn. A really key thing, which helps a lot of people that they don't think about doing is you can find this online and people write articles about it, but know what LinkedIn recruiter looks like on the recruiter side. So um, obviously this is an audio podcast, so I can't kind of do a screen share and like show you. But when you understand how recruiters search for people, you'll know how to optimize your profile. So the first thing is that okay, we're going to talk about, you know, is a LinkedIn presence a good thing or whatever. But the first thing is to be able to be found in the first place. And when somebody is searching through those, so like having the key skills in your skill section, but then also in your, you know, your like about me section, which is at the top, because you can either search for skills and like select them, or you can do like what's called like a Boolean search. You want to make sure that you are actually making sure that you're going to come up in like those searches. So that is like the first step. But then the other one is to explore like the different hiring platforms. 
So a few which I used when I was hiring internally at X Design. So a lot of these are actually only for companies, which is actually good for the candidates because you know that they're actually credible people hiring for real jobs. Um, not saying that recruiters aren't, but for debate. So a few of the really good hiring platforms are Cord, Hacker Job, and then Otter. We'll put links to all these in the show notes for easy reference. Haystack is another good one. Hired.com angel.co but i think they actually changed it they've renamed yeah it's called well found now i think so those are the few like big ones that i would make sure that you actually like sign up to make sure that your profile is like you know up to scratch they will ask you for kind of like what salary range you're looking for you're looking for like hybrid etc but that is what actually one of the more successful ways that i found candidates my like response rate was actually like a lot higher So for example, if it was going to take me six hours of sourcing on LinkedIn to get two candidates, but only two hours on the other platforms, I'm probably going to spend more time there. So that's one of the mistakes that like people make kind of thinking that like LinkedIn is the only avenue, but there's like other platforms and some of these are like specific to tech as well, which is great. I think there's some fantastic resources. Wellfound is mostly geared at startups, basically. So it's a great way to find jobs at startups. Sometimes really early stage, you see job ads for co-founders, for example, uh, where you get paid nothing, but you're a co-founder in the company. But there are also jobs on there for, you know, series A, series B type startups who can pay a very generous salary if you're the right candidate. And then I think the other category of platform you described are the kind of platforms where the recruiter is supposed to come to you. It's a little bit like, what's that dating app where the girl has to swipe before the guy? I think it's Hinge. <laughs> or is it Bumble? I can't remember. Yeah, Bumble, I think. Oh, it's been a long time. I'm in a long-term relationship now. Those days are far behind me. Yeah, me too. <laughs> but yeah, so some of them are. So like Cord, for example, goes like both ways. So you can search for the jobs and send a message to a recruiter or the recruiter can do it for you. Whereas like a job only works the way that like, the recruiter reaches out to you. But the benefit of these as well is that they have their own like scheduling things. So anybody who's listening to this will know that sometimes, you know, doing like the back and forth and waiting for people to like schedule in and then getting like pushed back is like, that's such a headache, right? Job hunting is a full job in itself. So if you can make it easier for yourself, like that is a great place to look. Those sound like some brilliant resources to get recruiters to notice your profile compared to LinkedIn, where frankly, it's very, very vast now. Everybody has a LinkedIn profile. Sometimes the ability to surface your profile isn't the best because it's not just a job searching platform, it's a social network. And even though I don't think this plays into LinkedIn recruiter so much, there is an element of if you are social on the platform that might increase your visibility through the platform. And that's not something that everybody wants to do. It might be better to to focus on your coding skills, for example. Of course, the other way to get a job is to actually go and apply. I'm sure you had to comb through quite a fair few resumes and cover letters during your time. What do you think are some of the things that make job applications stand out? I'm probably going to say a piece of advice or a response that like a lot of people wouldn't actually really expect, but it's actually very difficult to stand out as an entry-level candidate. A lot of the time, people will think that they have to do things which is not necessarily the best way to like do it. 
let's take the CV. You know that there are all these like CV templates and they look really nice on like Canva, et cetera. And I'm a big Canva fan, so like no shades. But when you use those and you start to have like all of like the colors and the two columns, which are harder to read, that's actually having the opposite effect because it makes it harder to actually look at the content. So the best way to stand out on a CV is not by the formatting or the template or whatever. It's by having standout content. And I appreciate it can be difficult to have that as an entry-level candidate because you don't have the experience. But a lot of the time, it is how you frame things. You know that personal statement summary thing that people put at the top of their CV? I've read so many that are really generic and they don't add any value to the CV, which is okay because sometimes it's really hard to like summarize things and it's hard to pull something to the top when you don't have the commercial experience to like pull people in. So if you read in your personal summary and it feels generic and you can't make it sound better, just get rid of it. The purpose of your CV is to secure you an interview and that's it. So if that's not adding value to the CV, get rid because that's the first impression that somebody is actually going to like read, like let them go straight to the things that are actually going to add like the value. And another good, um, a few things that like I see on people's CVs is like the use of metrics. So by metrics, I mean talking about where you've saved time, where you've reduced spend or increased profits. The business world revolves around all of those things, right? People want to do things quicker. They want to make more money. So if you can actually bring stats into that and people say, okay, well, what if it's a non-technical role? I say it doesn't matter because it's transferable. So let's say for argument's sake, I, somebody who currently works in marketing, is now applying for a junior developer role because I've done all of the learning on Scrimba and I'm now ready to apply for junior developer jobs. I'm going to talk about how I changed processes improve job adverts so that I increase the job conversion rate by X percentage because as humans were drawn to numbers. So that is a good, very subtle way to like stand out on your CV. And then the final tip, which I will give is so you need to make sure that it's the right recruiter because recruitment teams can be huge, but don't send them a LinkedIn message, like chasing it up, especially like after like a day, but send your application through the normal methods, like apply online, but like send the right recruiter. If you know that it's them recruiting for the role, send them a message afterwards or like a day or two after and say that like, Hey, um, I've applied for this role. I totally appreciate, you know, you'll be working for like, the applicants, but I just wanted to connect with you because I saw this that you posted recently or this that the company did recently and I saw it on the LinkedIn and I thought it was really great and it really resonated with me because of X, Y, Z. Um, look forward to connecting and hearing back from you. Like that kind of follow-up is really impactful. And honestly, 95% of candidates never did that with me. So the 5% that did, I was like, oh, this is great. Like it's not pushy, but it's kind of like it's a little bit forward thinking. So that's my final tip on how to like stand out above all of the noise. I heard, and is it true, that recruiters only spend a few seconds on each resume because they have so many and therefore you really need to stand out quickly? Oh, I love this question because... It's such a nuanced topic, so I'm going to try and give the short answer. Yes, there may be some recruiters that only spend like a few seconds, but if they do, they're not doing their job properly. (laughs) Well, yeah, because you can't really effectively make like a decision. And I know some hiring managers who will categorically not be happy with that. 
because as humans, you cannot consume and process and make a decision in such a short period of time. Unless you're applying a huge amount of bias, probably. Yeah, if you're fixating on like bias... And also we do have to remember that like internal recruitment teams were some of the hardest hit with the layoffs. But what I would say is that we'd maybe spend 10 to 15 seconds scanning the CV, looking for key information to make sure that it's worth our time to read further. So by that I mean basic requirements, scanning what roles, where, when, So like, you know, for a senior level role, I don't like to put a number on it, but let's say X years of experience, roughly, we're looking for the basic requirements of, let's say, JavaScript and TypeScript. And I'm looking for somebody located in the UK because we're remote first, but they need to be UK based. So once I've deduced that information, it goes in either the kind of like the no pile, okay, doesn't meet basic requirements, or like the maybe pile. And then I go through each of those in like more detail. So... That highlights the importance of having an easily scannable CV, clear headers, dividers, and do not use two columns. Ah, okay. So this actually reinforces your point about the Canva templates, because even though they're pretty to look at, potentially, they will have a custom format compared to a standard format that makes things easier to digest for a recruiter. That's very interesting. Another kind of standard thing we see sometimes that I want to get your perspective on is a cover letter. Do you think a cover letter is necessary? Again, I try not to talk in like definitives. I mean, for some of them, yes. Job seeking is like, it's like almost like a full-time job. So it's where you're going to spend your time effectively. Also, let's take it into like the kind of recent context with the popularity and accessibility of a generative AI. It is so easy for somebody to copy and paste a blurb on a company, copy and paste a blurb on a job, and tell ChatGPT, write me a cover letter. And like we know, we know when it's ChatGPT'd. I would say the cases where a cover letter is beneficial is to explain circumstances. So let's say I need to hire people in the UK, but somebody applied for a role who's based in Germany, but they were relocating back to the UK where they're originally from and their family is here. So it's like, you know, set in stone. So they were explaining that on the cover letter. Perfect not really something you've put on the CV. Um, somebody else, I don't like that they felt obligated to do it, but that's the world that they live in. But it was a lady who was applying for a role who had had an extended period of like time off of work to look after her children. And she felt that she just wanted to explain that in the cover letter. Again, I hate that that's actually needed, but that's where she used the opportunity. So a cover letter to explain circumstances, yes. A cover letter to explain why you think you're a good fit for the role and that you've done your research on the company? No. What about applying on the weekends? If you apply to a job on a Friday or a weekend, say, do you think you're less likely to get noticed because you fall to the bottom of the pile or something like that? Maybe you'd be at the top of the pile because nobody else was applying over the weekend. It honestly depends. What I tended to do, I reviewed applicants every single day. I think personally, it wouldn't make a difference to me, but I can imagine for people who are getting like, hundreds of applicants like every single day for like high volume roles like maybe but taking it back to like the individuals is that like your circumstances may mean that you can only apply on the weekend so like don't break yourself and like your mental health trying to do your applications on a weekday just because you think that you're less likely to actually like get a role and you have to like do what is best for you and I think it's unlikely that like 
people are just going to work through the top of the pile, i.e. people who came in on Monday, and ignore the rest of the candidates. Something else I wanted to get your perspective on, even though it might be a bit more nuanced than the previous questions, is this idea about jobs not necessarily listing the salary that can make it kind of tough for a candidate to sort of filter out opportunities based on what they either need to earn to live or want to earn to feel valued. What advice would you share with someone who's applying for a job that doesn't list the salary? I approach this conversation very, very much of the thinking that like money is such a taboo topic. And I am a first generation immigrant in Indian culture, like we just don't talk about it. You just don't talk about like how much you make or how much like you want to make. So some people do actually come from those kind of like cultures, like environments. But that also means that people end up getting underpaid. I understand why companies don't have the salaries on the job adverts. They might not want their competitors to know how much they're like paying people because people had to hunt from like each other's like companies. And, you know, there's that whole kind of like thing. And I understand that is frustrating to like job seekers. It's actually almost never the recruiter's decision. Um, a lot of us are trying to advocate for it. But the way that I would say to approach it is actually going back to what I said earlier, you know, those job platforms like Hackerjob and Otter, et cetera. Um, a lot of them actually do show the salaries because they match up the candidates based on like what they're looking for. So sometimes you'll find the same role on LinkedIn without a salary is on Otter with a salary. Like it's wild. So if you see a role and you really like it, try and find it on another platform and you might find out. And another thing is there's a small chance this might work against you. But if getting that salary is really important for you, like just email the recruiter and ask them. So like I've had people reach out to me and say that before I book in for the first stage interview with you, can you just tell me what the salary band is? And I'm like, yeah, sure. Like I can share that with you on an email. And they're like, okay, perfect. That fits within my expectations. Let's talk. So like you can definitely ask for it. But one piece of advice I would share for anybody, no matter whether you're junior or like senior, whatever, make sure that you ask in the first call um, nobody is entitled to hours and hours of your time, multiple stages of interviews, take home tests when you don't know what they're going to pay you. I think that is absolutely wild, but I know like it happens. It is completely valid. If you get into the first stage interview and they still haven't covered it off by like the end and they say, hi, great. Um, yeah, happy to proceed. Have you got any questions? Please, for the love of God, ask them because it's just respectful on like both sides. Because if what they're offering does not meet your expectations, it's not going to be able to justify the cost of living and your, like your bills and everything. That's like a great time and a good opportunity to just part ways. But like you're going to feel so much more resentful if you get to the very final stage and then you get your offer and it's like 10, 15K lower than what you expected. And I think it's completely normal. Like we work for money. Like we don't work for like good vibes and like a pat on the back. Like we have bills to pay. We have families to support. Like let's not skate around the fact that like we need money to survive. So I really just want to like try to like remove some of the taboo around that conversation. I really appreciate that. And I've been trying to do something similar. Something that helps me is to think about it in pure economic terms. Like you are exchanging your labor for a salary. Like that's the transaction. And you are being paid not based on a worth that the employer gets to make up and pull out of thin air. In an established industry, you're being paid according to a market rate. 
which will vary. Like it's a fairly broad range a lot of the time, but then that's up to you and what you value, right? Maybe you get certain benefits or certain flexibility that means you'll take less, or maybe it's to do with your geographic area, for example. So I do think thinking about it in economic terms like that does remove a little bit of the shyness from it maybe because it can you're right feel like a slightly taboo topic to talk about money and salary and you can feel greedy and all these things but it needn't needn't be that way at all yeah and um is a few minutes of what you feel is an uncomfortable conversation worth an extra 10 15 20k for like the next sort of year or so uh yes please people should be paid based on how good they are at their job not how good they are at negotiating I would consider myself to be a fairly expert negotiator. I do it for other people, actually. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, my friend called me and she needed some advice on negotiating her salary. But she was on the back foot already because she didn't have the company's salary banding. So she didn't know what it start, what it, you know the top and the bottom end was. And she also didn't have any other offers to basically like negotiate with. Um, but like I just kind of do this for fun. So I was like told you exactly how to approach her, how, what to say. And she got a you know, plus like 10% increase. But she had me to ask for that and me to like bat in her corner. And like a lot of people don't have that. And I think that's really wrong. Like they had the extra budget to pay it. And you paid her based on how well she negotiated. And you were more than happy to actually underpay her in the first place. So I really wish companies would stop doing that. Because in my entire internal recruitment um, like career, I only had one person negotiate because I made it crystal clear and transparent right in the beginning what the salary band was, the top and the bottom, how we determine where people sit within the band. I don't ask them the current salary. I actively tell them not to tell me that because I say it's actually really not relevant in this conversation. And then when I present them with the offer, I tell them why we've banded them where they are. So within like a senior band, there's like one, two, three. And I give them the justification. And I say, which are the areas that, you know, will work with them on, you know, when they join and when we do the salary reviews. So because of that, like level of transparency, and this is how it should be. Like, this is where the benchmark should be. So because of that, like people didn't feel like I was, you know, taking them around the houses and just kind of lowball them and see how low that they get. They know that like I've given them like the best offer, like why we've given it. There's a rationale there. Yeah, there's a rationale behind it. And they're like, okay, like this person genuinely has my best interest in heart. Um, I don't have any like, you know, financial like incentive for like lowballing people or anything like that. And recruiters don't, by the way, just to like clarify, like they don't get bonuses based on these sorts of things. Like it's just not right. And the only, the one person who did negotiate, it's because he had to compete in offer. And, you know, what he was looking for was sort of like beyond sort of like the salary, like bands as well, but like he really liked the role. So it wasn't because he felt like we had like lowballed him. And it was, it was a market rate salary, by the way. But he was just like, look, this company has come back with like this like offer can we like talk about this movie? Like, okay, we're, we're kind of, we're pushing the sort of like band there. We want to be equitable. And, but that was like the only person. And I think that's the way that it should be. You've got to be careful there. I think as a recruiter or a company, because if you lowball and then the candidate negotiates and gets a significant increase, then you're kind of revealing to that candidate just how you're willing to treat them behind closed doors, which is to offer them the minimum, unless they very strongly advocate for themselves I am glad to say, and I hope that I'm not just wielding rose-tinted glasses when I say this, but I do think the industry is shifting in a sense because 
obviously uh, candidates are becoming more aware of these practices and they severely resent them. That's one thing. So being aware means they might avoid them in the first place. Then from the recruiter's perspective, I think a lot of recruiters are realizing that it, their success in their role is dependent on building long-term reputation and maybe relationships with candidates. And if they are to operate in a manner that is you know, dishonest or under the table, that's not going to help them succeed in achieving their hiring targets in the long run uh, because they will either get a reputation or they'll lack a sufficient network to connect great candidates with great roles. Yeah, I think sometimes, especially in like the corporate like business world as well, I think what this really boils down to is that like everybody deserves respect. Every candidate, no matter what their background is, what their level is, like where they've come from, like deserves to be treated with like dignity and deserves to be treated equitably. And the same for people on the like hiring side as well. I think some of the disdain against like recruiters is like completely warranted. Like there's some absolutely wild practices out there and it's, you know, a very unregulated like industry. But a lot of recruiters, especially like internal recruiters, are really overworked. As I was saying, you know, with companies making like the layoffs and like they're having to like hire the same number of roles with like less people in like the team. So I think when we look at like job hunting in like tech and try and approach it with um, I think there's actually like a phrase for this. Have you heard of like the prime directive or something in retrospectives? It says, regardless of what we discover, we understand and truly believe that everyone did the best job they could, given what they knew at the time, their skills and abilities, the resources available and the situation at hand. So what that basically translates to is that like a lot of people are just trying to do the best that they can, given the situation. And the more that we understand that on like both sides in like the workplace and when like recruiting, I think we start to stop seeing people as like kind of like commodities and seeing them as like actual like human beings. And I think that does sometimes get lost in tech recruitment. Yeah, I think it gets lost in business in general uh, some of the time. <laughs> Definitely. You sound very empathetic towards candidates and the people with which you work. And I've noticed you use language throughout the interview, like equitable instead of equal, for example. And in general, it sounds like you're giving someone listening a bit of confidence, like you're saying, hey, do that thing. It's okay. Um, you know, it'd be nice if there was someone to advocate for, you know, you just like I did my friend. I'm going to try and be that person to you in this interview. Why is it important to you to bring that positive message? Oh just from my own personal background and experiences that like I've had so I mentioned earlier that I am a first generation immigrant I mean people can't see me right now but I'm an Indian woman I'm neurodivergent so I was diagnosed with ADHD um just over like two and a half years ago I had a lot of struggles in sort of like earlier life and as of probably a few weeks before recording this like podcast I had finally come to terms with the fact that I am also autistic. So I am self-diagnosed currently. There is no shadow of a doubt, but I am had a referral for a medical diagnosis. So because of all of those things and never feeling like I like belonged and I spent a lot of time not really feeling like I had anybody like fighting my corner, I think I really brought that passion into like what I do in like the workplace. And I think it's taught me a lot of like, sympathy but a lot of like empathy as well it's made me incredibly hyper aware of a lot of the barriers that people actually face in the workplace because of being 
like women or neurodivergent or of ethnic minority or of a different socioeconomic like background um being a bit older like you know there's so many different types of like discrimination and a lot of the marginalized groups which actually like impacted in like the workplace and I think as anybody with a position of power so whether that's a recruiter a hiring manager an interviewer a line manager a HR person even if you don't have manager and title like everybody is in a position to actually make a change but if you're only doing that change for the people that maybe look like you or like sound like you I don't think we're doing our you know actually meeting our like duty of care to like everybody so I think advocating for other people is like very central to like everything that I do and I'm just I'm so passionate about it I could talk about this for ages (laughs) if you can't tell but I just hope that anybody listening to this just like knows that like it might feel like it like right now but there are like people out there who are like willing to like support you a lot of my like mentor mentee relationships just started from somebody reaching out to me and asking a question which then turned into jumping on a call, which then turned into like a call every like two weeks, which turns into them, you know, helping them sort of like break into like the market. So there are people out there who understand you and who have your back. Like people are really nice, actually. People are willing to help. You just have to know where to find them and you just have to ask the first question. Harold, I think you're, you sound so courageous and eloquent while you talk about these things. It's really impressive. I think that so many people have their own that they are, it's interesting because the more I get to know people on a personal level or the more I learn speaking to people like yourself, you you kind of realize that so many people have challenges, but they like internalize them, uh, almost convincing themselves that like they're the exception. When actually, I think if everybody spoke their truth at the same time, you'd realize that they are the rule. Like everybody is a little bit different in some way. And yet we all sometimes act like we have to be the same and conform. And that's a a problem. Uh, But it's only when people speak up that this changes and you do it in such a public way. You do it so freely on the podcast. I just wanted to give you props for that. And, you know, I realized in talking to you about this subject and segueing the conversation a little bit, we need to do a whole episode about this. We need to learn your story. We need to learn a bit more about neurodiversity and tech. I'm sure you know this. Uh, But for the benefit of people listening, it turns out a remarkable number of developers have ADHD. Uh, There's a whole subreddit dedicated to ADHD, for example. Uh, And so there's something about this craft that attracts that type of person. I think we could talk a little bit about why that might be. Uh, so so what do you say? Instead of cramming too much into one episode, how about you join me again in a week or two to talk all about this? Yeah, that would be absolutely fantastic. I think neurodiversity in tech is still quite an unexplored topic. But as we know, and anybody who works in tech will just know, and, and like, there's a lot of neurodivergent people in here. Neurodiversity and neurodivergence is actually absolutely crucial to innovation which is how we build tech products, which I think is why people are like attracted to it. But like you said, it is a whole topic in itself. And I think I have a lot of like my own lived experience as like an ADHDer. I'm still getting used to that word actually, because it used to be ADHDer. I also like started and run our internal neurodiversity community at Xdesign. So I would be absolutely delighted to join you back in like a future episode to talk a little bit about neurodiversity in the workplace, but then going like specific into tech. Of course. Parol, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much, Alex. I really, really enjoyed this. Um, And you are a fantastic podcast host. And I look forward to joining you again in a few weeks. 
That was the Scrimba Podcast. Check out the show notes for all the resources mentioned in this episode. If you made it this far, please subscribe. You can find the show wherever you listen to podcasts. The show is hosted by Alex Booker and produced by me. I'm Jan Arsinovic. You can find both of our Twitter handles in the show notes. Next week, we're talking about the current state of React. Keep coding and see you next time.